We really will not do this every week, but I was really grateful last week for your interaction with me to help me understand from you which of these biblical characters that we've been examining you feel like you've learned the most about the last couple of weeks. So if you've been with us, you'll remember we're looking at different characters in Scripture. We're calling them different heroes. Uh, and there's some of those characters in, in Scripture that maybe we don't always hear so much about them. They don't get as much airtime as some of the more major figures. And yet these are everyday people that God is using in extraordinary ways. God is using in heroic ways. But really the basis of that uh, heroic nature isn't because of how good they are or how wonderful they are, but rather their willingness to open themselves up and be used by God for God's purposes. And as people do that, God uses them to do and accomplish very significant things. So you might be remembering some of the characters we've been looking at, but, and I'm going to name them in just a moment. But whereas last week I asked you to stand if you were willing to share which characters you were learning the most about, what I want to ask you to do here this morning is to be willing to stand for the character that's just your favorite of, of the ones that we've looked at. And whether it's somebody you knew a lot about, or even if you've been here every week, or whether you haven't been, maybe you've heard a little bit of the characters, I would just be really curious this morning, which of these characters, for whatever reason, are your favorite? And just to put your mind at ease, uh, your character that you pick right now, in five minutes it could be different. I understand that. But just for right now, there's no wrong answers. And uh, as we do that, I will also be curious. It's been fun to go throughout the morning and see from each service which one they have picked as the one that's been their favorite. So you don't need to stand yet, but just to help you remember who we're talking about. A number of weeks ago, we looked at Rahab. You'll remember that Rahab was a prostitute that God used to protect the spies in, of God's people and ultimately help them enter into the promised land. Eventually, she was part of the Faith Hall of Fame and the lineage of Jesus himself. Then we spent some time and we looked at Esther. Esther was a queen that God used to save God's people. She had to put her life on the line in order for that to occur, for those people to be saved. We then looked at a guy named Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, you might remember, served on the king's court as a cupbearer, but it was because of his care, it was because of his prayer, and it was because of his willingness to take action that he helped the people of God build up the wall around Jerusalem for protection. And then if you were with us last week, you might remember we looked at Jonathan, and Jonathan was a tremendous friend to David. David, who would become King David, as great as he was, he would not have been David were it not for somebody like Jonathan walking alongside of him. So I'm just curious this morning, of those characters, if Rahab was your favorite or is your favorite, for whatever reason, would you stand where you are? Just do me a favor. Is any Rahab fans out there? Okay, there's a couple. All right, great. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. If Esther was your favorite, can I see you stand? Any Esther fans out there? All right, great, thanks, go ahead and sit down. If Nehemiah was your favorite, would you please take a moment and stand up? All right, some Nehemiah fans. All right, thanks. And if Jonathan was your favorite, would you mind standing up wherever you are? All right, thank you very much, I appreciate that. I, it was actually kind of hard to tell which one was your favorite. I, I, a lot of them were close. I think Esther was right there, maybe. Uh, Jonathan was right there as well. There's a little bit more even here, I think, than some of the other services. But throughout the morning, I would guess that Esther has been, in general, people's favorite. If I were to pick right now, and again, it could change in five minutes, I think I would be picking Rahab, just because she's like the outcast of the outcast, and God uses her in such a significant way. He doesn't like just glance her way. She is woven to the Faith Hall of Fame, the lineage of Jesus himself. I, I'm just blown away by that. So thank you for indulging me in that again. We're not going to do 
do that every week, but it's just helpful to see what's resonating, who we personally connect with, and uh, each one of these heroes, again, average people that God is using in significant ways. As we come together this morning, I'm very excited to spend some time focusing on the character that Lena graciously just introduced, introduced us to, and that is Deborah. And you're going to hear more of her story here in just a little bit. If you were listening, it is a complex story. Now, I will say this. If you like stories of intrigue and suspense and action and plot twists, this is a great story for you because this story has it all. But to understand Deborah and what's going on there, we first need to take a little bit of a step back and understand the context that we're dealing with here this morning. I think that's always important when we look at some of these characters. So the first thing I want us to understand is where this book is even happening in Scripture. It is happening early on. It's book number seven in the Old Testament. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. Deborah's story is happening in the book of Judges. Here's why that is significant. When you look at these first books of the Bible, many of us know that Genesis is where it all began. Everything got started there. But then in books Exodus through Deuteronomy, that's basically the story of Moses who's raised up and he leads the people of God out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into freedom. All of that's happening through those books. But it's not Moses who gets to take God's people into the promised land. It is a guy named Joshua. It's Joshua who gets to move them into the promised land. So after Deuteronomy comes Joshua. In Joshua, we hear of Joshua leading them into the promised land. That is where Rahab's story comes in. She was integral into helping God's people get into the promised land. And now, after Joshua comes this book called Judges. And all is going well at this point. Like if, if, if after, in, once the new people, when the people get into, the, into Joshua in, their, in the new promised land, everything is going well. It'd be so great if God's people just kept on doing the right thing and stayed focused on God and lived happily ever after. That's what I want to read. But when you look at Joshua, that's not what happened. For a while, they get into the promised land. They're all celebrating. They've been freed from slavery. Yay, everything's really, really good. And then those darn Israelites, they started to, drift. They started to let their focus go off of God onto other things. They started to follow the ways of their neighbors and other people. And as a result, bad things started to happen. And I want to point my finger at the Israelites and be like, why did you do that? Things were so good. Why did you take your eye off God? Except the Israelites aren't any different than you or me. Even when life is going really well, sometimes especially when life is going really well, we have this human tendency to take our eye off God and start to do our own thing. Well, that's what's happening as the book of Judges begins here this morning. And what we're going to discover is that every time the people of God started to take their eyes off of God and drift, God would bring them back, bring their attention and focus back to God by allowing things like enemies to come and overtake the Israelite people. Now, on the surface, if you are all like me, that to me sounds kind of harsh. It, it almost paints a picture of God standing there like fist raised and looking mean and looking awful. If you go off my path even one step, I'm letting these enemies come and overtake you. When the reality is God loves us enough, God loves us so much that God's going to do whatever it takes to help bring us back into the path and focus that God wants for us. So in the case of the Israelites here, they start to focus and they start to drift off of God. And as they do that, one of the things that God knows is that if God allows these enemies to come in and overtake Israel, that will actually serve in the long run of helping to bring their attention back to God. Because please know this about God. God wants every one of us to flourish. God has our absolute best in mind. 
God wants us to experience wonderful things. The Garden of Eden was a place of life and play and vitality. It was not a prison. And so this God that we serve wants our absolute best. And so when we get to judges and their attention starts to drift off of God in a way, one of the ways that God is going to help bring their attention back so that they can ultimately experience God's best is by allowing enemies to come in and overtake them, which in the long run is going to help them refocus and cry out to God and say, help us out. At the same time, though, I would also lift this up. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at passages like this and think that God is smiting the Israelites. They did bad and God is smiting. I would also say that a lot of what we see is Israel smiting itself, meaning this. The rules, the laws, the ways that God gives us to follow are for the best life possible. God doesn't give us laws and rules to hold us back. They're actually designed to help us live the best life possible. And so when the Israelites begin to disobey God, they bring many hardships on themselves. Just like you and I, when we choose to disobey God and what God desires, we bring hardship on ourselves. So for example, in all of humanity, when we choose to be violent towards one another, we're hurting ourselves. When we choose to murder one another, we are hurting ourselves. When we embrace ways of racism, we are hurting ourselves. When we embrace sexism, we are hurting ourselves. Those are things that we're bringing our own harm on ourselves. Individually, when we choose to walk away from the ways of God, we often bring harm on ourselves. So when we choose to engage in things like adultery, we're hurting ourselves, or live constantly in debt, we're hurting ourselves. When we choose to constantly be engaged in any form of addiction, whether it's related to pornography, or gambling, or tearing other people down, or gossip, you name it, we're hurting ourselves. So it's easy enough for us to say, what's God smiting the Israelites? I would say just as much, if not more, we are smiting ourselves. And so this is what's starting to happen as we're getting here to the start of of, uh, of judges the people of god have been walking with god but they're turning away now israel is struggling enemies are starting to come in they're hurting themselves and they start to call out to god about what can be done how is god going to be able to help them so as we're going through judges what we're going to see is there's a pattern that's going to happen over and over and over and over again and here's the pattern just so i'm really really clear about it with you first of all you're going to see that the israelites do evil they make that disobedient choice that's going to happen first then the lord is going to give them into the hands of an enemy he's going to allow that to happen at least for a time because they're in the hands of an enemy they're going to call out to god for help God's going to hear their cry for help, and he's going to raise up a judge that's going to deliver them for a period of time, and the people are going to turn back to God. That's the pattern over and over and over. Israelites do evil. Enemies come in and conquer them. Israelites call out to God for help. God raises up a judge. People turn back to God over and over and over. Now, here's the interesting thing about judges. If you look at the book as a whole, When Judges starts, the first judges that we see, the first judges that we have, they are lifted up as model judges, model leaders. They do a really good job, and every time they help the people of God get back to God, the people stay focused there for a while. It's a really good thing. The very first judges that we're reading about, Deborah is actually number four. The first judges are people named Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Now think about that. Try to say those names three times fast. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. They're actually the first three judges in the book of Judges, and we're going to find out Deborah is number four. 
these individuals get a lot of airtime. When you go through the pattern I just walked you through, it takes a while to get through that whole pattern. They are lifted up as really good judges. However, as the book of Judges goes on, here's what you're going to see. That pattern I just mentioned keeps happening, but every time it happens and they bring a leader back and they start to follow, the people of God start to follow God, they do it not quite as well as the previous pattern. And then the next one comes, they do it not quite as well as the previous pattern. And so actually what happens is a very sure but slow demise throughout all of Judges. So that by the time you get to end of Judges, it's just this constant pattern really of demise and chaos that is spiraling downhill. It's a really messy book. It's in this context that we're going to hear about Deborah. Now Deborah is one of the first Judges. She's going to be in Judges chapter 4. She's judge number four, but here's the thing about Deborah. She's the first woman judge. Now, here's why that's significant. When I say to you the word judge, my guess is that for many of us, we think of somebody sitting with a gown on behind a desk with a gavel hitting, and maybe with a law degree hanging behind their head. They're a lawyer or an attorney or something like that. That's not what a judge is in this time with Deborah. A judge in this time played three very significant roles. They were a prophet, they were a judge, and they were military leader. Those are three powerful roles. As prophet, they represented the voice of God. As judge, they settled disputes among God's people. And as military leader, they had general command over the army at their disposal. And this time, there are no kingdoms yet. There are no kings yet. So last week we talked about King David and Jonathan walking with him. David's not even on the scene yet. Solomon's not even on the scene yet. Saul's not even on the scene yet. So essentially, a judge in this time was the national leader. They're the ones who are pulling people together, trying to strive for a sense of identity, speaking what God wanted to God's people. They were it. They were at the top of the line as far as leadership in that time. So that's what a judge is. So you've got Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. And now for the first time, judge number four, but the first one, Deborah, is going to be a woman judge. And in a time when women did not have a voice, and in a time when women were often viewed as property, it is significant that Deborah, as a woman, is judge. And in that, she starts to give us one of the first clues that we're looking at today of what it means to be a godly hero, and that is this, that God's heroes have the courage to be first. God's heroes have a willingness to go into uncharted land and uncharted territory and move forward even when they're not sure what's going to happen, even at risk to themselves. When I say this, this is not an ego thing. It's not to say, let me go in first and everybody look at me. Rather, it's a willingness to go in first, oftentimes for the sake of others. One of the first things that I think about with that is yesterday, as many of you know, was the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon by Neil Armstrong. That's a really, really big deal. We are still talking about that for obvious reasons, but why was it such a big deal? Because it had never been done before. Why isn't someone like Neil Armstrong viewed as heroic? Because he did something that had never been done before, literally moving into unchartered, unpioneered waters and doing something that hadn't been done before. Now, it's easy for you and I to miss today the significance of someone like Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. At that time, people were glued to their TV sets watching what was happening. They didn't know if he was going to make it. 
They didn't know if it was the, the endeavor was going to be successful. And if he did land on the moon, and if he did step on the moon, there was no guarantee he was going to get back. There were so many variables in that. And there are some among us that can remember that and can testify to the intensity of that. Is he going to make it or not? Why was the intrigue so high? Why was the interest level so high? Because this had never been done before. It's the first time. And so he goes and he achieves this, and he's the first one to do it. There's a sense of uh, heroic nature about that for us to engage in. Deborah is a little bit the same. She's the first woman to be judge, and that's significant. First church, I hope and pray that we will be a church willing to go first or go among the first to do and to be whatever church God needs in this day and in this age. Because our reality is the message of Jesus Christ never changes. But the world is very different today than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 20 years ago or six years ago. And if we continue to try to do church and be church like it was in those times, we're going to miss the opportunity to share the transforming love of Jesus Christ with an awful lot of people. And one of the ways that we are seeking to be a pioneering church and to move, on to un move into uncharted water is to be what we call, their, call ourselves to be a gathered and sent church. So we're going to keep gathering here on Sunday mornings. We're going to do everything we can to have this be an amazing experience. And we hope and we pray that you'll not only be part of that, but you'll invite others to become part of that as well and join us in this space. But at the same time, we are committed to being sent into our community where we can also have and be church at places like a rugby field, the pajama factory, in our homes, you name it. For people and with people that for whatever reason may say, I'm never going to come here on a Sunday morning. Are we willing to go and be with them in those times and in those places and pioneer in that way? One of the reasons that the life of Christ was so significant on this earth for all kinds of reasons, but one of the things is he shattered the paradigm of what it meant to be the people of God. Yes, he taught regularly in places like the temple, but the gospel was also shared at a well, on the beach, at homes with sinners, on the lake, all these other places. And it threw the religious leaders for such a loop. They, 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 what was going on? Jesus was setting forth a new paradigm, moving into uncharted waters and pioneering in new ways. God's church, God's people, are a people willing to go among the first for the sake of others. And I hope and I pray that we will be that kind of church. And I'm grateful for the example of Deborah, who for the sake of leading God's people, was willing to step in and be a first kind of leader as a female judge for the people of Israel. Are we willing to be among the first? So all of that as we're thinking about it brings us to what actually happens in the story, and Lena walked us through that, but it's a complex story. So just to be really clear for all of us, I want to make sure we know who the major characters are. Number one is Deborah. She's the most obvious one. She's a judge, which means she's the military leader, and she's the prophet, and she's the judge. But another significant person is Barak. Uh, I like to call him Barry. Uh, he is the military commander of God's people, the Israelite people. His technical boss is Deborah. She's the one that has ultimate authority over the commanding armies, but he's the one who's going to lead them on the ground. Another significant individual in this whole story is a woman named Jael. We could call her the almost silent assassin. You're going to see in a few minutes that she, as another female, plays a prominent role in this story. Another significant person is going to be Sisera. He's the commander of the army of the enemy, in this case the Canaanites. And then there is one more major character I just don't want us to miss. 
Anytime with any of these heroes we're going through, it's not just them on their own effort that makes them heroic. Each one of them that makes them a hero, they're willing to walk with God, a person or people willing to walk with God. So God is a major central figure in the story that we're going through here this morning. So keeping all of that in mind, I want us to, again, look carefully at where we are. If you have your Bibles or smartphone with you, look with me in Judges chapter 4, and look what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, after he had died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So first of all, right off the bat, here's this judge's pattern I was just talking about. Ehud had been a judge. Things had been well, but the people had taken their eyes off of God. The enemies had come in. The people of God call out, and God is going to raise up another individual for them. In verse 1, it says the Lord had sold them into the hands of Jabin, so that's being uh, ushered into the hands of the enemy. And then we're also told the commander of the army for Jabin is Sisera, who I just walked you through and told you about. We're also told in regards to this particular enemy in verse 3, it says he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years and they called out to the Lord for help. So again, pieces of that pattern, pieces of that cycle that we're seeing here. Now when it says about the 900 iron chariots, we might be like, eh, what's the big deal? This was a significant technological advancement for the people at this time. It would be a little bit like today saying uh, people with stealth bombers going against people who are just holding individual guns. Like the technological advancement of having iron chariots, it's a really big deal. It is intimidating. And we're told that Sisera gets to command people with this kind of technology here this morning. So then if you continue in the story, verse 4 says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. So we hear, again, now God is raising up up a prophet again, or a judge again, who's going to be leading the people of God. That term, Lapidoth, is interesting. It literally means woman or person of torches. Now think about that. At least for me, that's an intense image, and I picture this is not somebody you want to mess with. I picture energy and excitement and passion kind of thing. That's the kind of person that Deborah probably is with a zeal and an energy as she is leading here. That's the picture that we're given. And then if you continue in verses 6 and 7, you've got this situation occurring. Now Deborah calls Barak, who is her army commander. And she says to Barak, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So Deborah is telling Barak, You go and God is with you. You're going to be okay. Barry, go. God's blessing is with you. Now here's one of the major significant twists in the story. Barak says to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. And Deborah says, well, certainly I'll go with you. Now, why did Barak say that? We don't really know. Is it that he's a coward? Well, he might be kind of cowardly, but he's the commander of the armies. He's been in war before. We're going to see in a few minutes he's going into war again. He doesn't look necessarily like a coward in those situations. Maybe he just had such respect for Deborah that he's like, we want you there with us regardless. Maybe he recognized this is a woman who understands and hears the voice of God. So if she's with us, that will guarantee that we will have victory. We don't know exactly why, but Barak says, will you come with me? Now notice what Deborah does. And here's something else that we find that heroic leaders of God do. She ultimately looks at Barak, and even if she didn't want to go, because she looks at him and says, I'll go with you, but the honor's not going to be yours, Barak. The honor's going to go to somebody else. So be aware of that. 
So whether she wanted to or not, though, Deborah looks at Barak and says, but I will most certainly go with you. What is Deborah saying there? She's saying, Barak, I'll go to war with you. I'll journey with you. I will walk with you in the struggle you're about to engage, which tells us that, that heroes are people who journey with us. Heroes are people willing to walk with us in our struggle, our mess, our wars. So let me ask you right now, is there somebody in your mind that you can think of right now going through a difficult time Somebody in their own journey where it's messy or difficult, wars going on somehow in their soul or in a relationship or something like that, and might the best thing that you might be able to do with them or for them is just journey with them. When Deborah told Barak she was willing to do that, it inspired him and gave him confidence, and he said, I will go. Who do we know that we might be able to journey with to inspire them so they will go? wherever it is they need to go. Now, here's the really wonderful thing for you and I as followers of Jesus. The ultimate hero is Jesus himself. Why? He left the confines and the beauty of heaven, and he came here to this earth, and he put on flesh and blood. Why? So that he could journey with you and with me through our mess, our struggles, our wars, our everything. So that when Jesus looks at us and we say, we have this struggle or this is, this is going on in my life, without exception, Jesus can say to us, I know your struggle because I've been there. I have journeyed with you. That's what God's heroes do. Who is a church that we can journey with and walk with? Because the beautiful thing about this God is he walks with us no matter how messy no matter how dark the pit. In fact, one of the ironies of the faith is that those people who have gone through the most difficult times and they recognize that God has walked with them every step of the struggle, they are so very often the people who have the strongest of faith, not the weakest of faith. In my own personal devotions this past week, I was reading a story uh, of Corey Temboon and her, si her sister Betsy Temboon. And if you know their story, they were two sisters who were captured and were in the uh, concentration camps under the Nazi regime. Corey Tamboon eventually made it out, but there's the story told of them talking one day, and Betsy turned to her sister, and she literally said this. She said, Corey, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. And Corey, they'll listen to us because we have been there. We have been in this deep, dark pit, and therefore, we have credibility to say that God is right here with us in the depth of this pit. In fact, he's deeper still, and is walking through it with us. We got to tell the world, this is the kind of God who journeys with us. So church, who is it right now that we can journey with and walk with? Because that's what God's people, God's heroes do. Now, at this point, if we continue in the story, if you look in verse 16, this probably isn't going to surprise us. Uh, we're told they win. We're told that, that Cicero, his army is defeated. Barak comes against him, and Deborah goes with him, and the army's defeated. And I say that probably doesn't surprise us because we expect that in reading this story. However, the story's not quite over. It doesn't end there with just the army of Barak defeating the army of Sisera. We're told, yes, the army of Sisera is defeated. However, Sisera gets away. 
And he is literally running for his life. And as he is running for his life, he comes upon a tent or a home of a woman named Jael. And and he gets there, and remember, he's running for his life. And we're told that Jael is the only woman there at her tent or at her home. He gets there, and he's exhausted, and he's tired, and he knocks on the door, opens the tent door, or whatever, and he's like, can I come in? And look what it is that Jael says. She literally says, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound sweet? Doesn't that sound safe? So he enters her tent, and she covered him with a blanket, and he says, I'm thirsty, please give me some water. Then if you continue here in verses 18 through 20, it says, she then opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her, and if somebody comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. Now picture what's going on here. Here's this guy, and he's the commander of the army. So I can only think he's some big, rough, tough, strong dude. And he comes, and here we're told that Jael probably is by herself. And I imagine when she opened the door and see who's there, I mean, that's got to be intimidating for her. And so he comes to her, and he says, I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink of water? Notice she didn't give him water. She gave him, yes, she gave him milk. Why is that significant? If you've ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you're having trouble sleeping, sometimes what is it that we will drink to help us sleep better? We will get some warm milk. Or if a baby is crying to help them sleep or even just to feed them, we'll give them warm milk. And what happens? You drink that warm milk, it starts to fill up your belly, and before long, you're starting to feel kind of tired, kind of sleepy. Why didn't she just give him water like he asked for? Is it almost like JL starting to be a little sneaky here? She's sort of drugging him, like, I'm going to give him some more milk, and maybe that'll help comfort him and start to make him a little sleepy. And as if that's not enough, he then says he's going to lay down. What does she give him to help him sleep? Here's a warm, comfy blanket. Lay down here. So now he's drank this milk. He's starting to feel drowsy. If that's not enough, here's a warm, comfy blanket to help you sleep more. And oh, by the way, he looks at her and he says, hey, if anyone comes to the door looking for me, will you just move him along so I cannot be bothered? So you picture the irony here. You've got this big, strong, rough, tough guy. He comes, and here's JL, but the role is almost reversed. We're almost like a baby. He comes to JL for his bottle of milk and his warm planky and comfy, and she just sort of lays him down. You can just almost picture her rocking him gently to sleep. She's a sneaky one, that JL. And so here he is, and he's asleep, and then comes like the of the whole story. Chapter 4, verse 21. What happens? Jael, she picks up a tent peg and a hammer while he's sleeping, and she goes to where he is. Again, he's asleep and exhausted. She takes the tent peg and drives it through his head. Like, that's not very holy. Like, there's, there's not any holiness to be found there. So picture what's going on. Dude passes out and then she takes him out. I mean, that's what's happening here. And at least for me, I read that, and I look at like, what is going on here? Like, how is this, like, in Scripture, and how is this a story, and what's happening? Well, there's lots we could say there, but I think there's two things that kind of rise up for us to look at and to take notice of. Number one is this. When Sisera comes to her door in her tent, there's Jael, as far as we know, all alone. She could have at that point been like, Lord, what are you doing 
I am by myself. How am I supposed to protect myself against this big, strong individual or this enemy? And she could have complained and she could have made uh, excuses for herself. It's not what she does. She looks around and instead she creatively uses what God provides. She looks at the resources she has and creatively utilizes those resources in a way that have a significant impact because that's what heroes do. Heroes creatively use what God provides. Even things that on the surface don't seem like a very big deal. Even things that we would think that can't possibly be very important. So I think of people like David when he faced the giant Goliath. Not armor, not spears. Here's five little ordinary stones. Use them creatively, David. And what happened? The giant was slayed. Here's JL. Here's just a little tent peg. What is that against the big, strong, you know, commander of the military? She creatively uses it and has a significant impact because, again, heroes creatively use the resources God provides. Why is that significant? I imagine that when Jesus came to this earth, there was not one person in their right mind who said, Jesus will overturn this earth not with military might, not with fame, not with power, not with money. Jesus will overturn this world and usher in a new kingdom through a cross? Through a cross? Who would have thought that Jesus would enter in new life by first of all dying? God gives us tools all the time and so often our first excuse, our first uh, default is to make excuses. Lord, you didn't give me what I needed. You didn't give me what I was necessary. And we complain and we whine. What would happen if we would look at the resources God gives us and not underestimate them and choose to use them creatively? What would happen if we would say, imagine the power of prayer and kindness and humility and love and grace? Those tools don't look very shiny on the surface. But might we be able to use them intentionally and creatively and see the significant impact God can use with them. God's heroes create, uh, use God's resources in creative ways and trust that God provides. Here's the last piece of this story. It's not just JL. It's not just Barak. It's not just Deborah. In the middle of it all is God. And why is that significant? Because this God always finds a way. This God, no matter how messy, this God, no matter how great the struggle, this God, no matter how unholy life may be, this God always finds a way. <laughs> so here's this war, and here are these enemies, and here's all this oppression, and God finds a way. Here's humanity, and we keep turning away, and we keep rejecting God, and God keeps calling us back, and this God is not going to give up because this God will always find a way. The trajectory of the entire Old Testament is God working with God's people, and no matter how much we disobey, and no matter how much we run in a different direction, God says, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this because I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep following you until finally I will send my one and only son, Jesus Christ, for you. Why? Because this God always finds a way. And we see that exemplified in this story here this morning with Deborah. And one of the things I love about this story, we are lifting up Deborah as the hero. You know what? It's not just Deborah who's heroic. 
Barak plays a significant role. Jael plays a significant role. What do you see? God taking a group of people and using them for holy purposes. And we see this so often in Scripture. Moses worked with his brother Aaron. Elijah had Elisha. Paul worked with Barnabas. Jesus himself had a group of disciples that he traveled with. What's happening there? When people who want to serve God are brought together and God uses them for holy purposes so they don't have to do it alone. And I hope and I pray as I say that this morning there's something that starts to resonate in our own hearts here at First Church because one of my hopes and one of my prayers is not that we'll simply be a group of individuals in close proximity but that we will be a people who want to serve God together and trust that God will journey with us provide the resources that are needed and that somehow some way God will provide a way so that we together can see transformation in Christ and in that way, be the kind of heroes God wants us to be. All of that's found here in Deborah and Brock and Jael here this morning. And I love it. It is predicted that by the year 2050, in, in China, there will be more Christians at that time in China than there are in the United States. In fact, it's predicted there will be many more Christians in China at that time than here in the United States. Why is that significant? Because in China, you're not allowed to just be an open Christian. They face tremendous persecution and tremendous oppression. But you know what's happening there? There are people who are willing to go first into unchartered, unpioneered lands. And when they do that, they're willing to go with one another and make the journey together and know that God is journeying with them. And they are not underestimating the resources God is providing. Resources of prayer, and kindness, and love, and sacrifice. And they are using those in ever more creative ways as God provides them. And through all of that, God is providing a way. And lives are being transformed. It is my prayer, First Church, that we will be such a people. Amen.